Nobody walks into their first dream home. Their first home is getting into the market. Banks are more conservative in terms of lending amounts. I don't think I could buy a home in the next five years. Welcome to Real Talk, realestate.com.au's property news podcast. It's real questions, real experts, and real insights on the housing issues that matter with your host, Alice Piper. Today, we have a very big, very meaty topic. Is it really so hard to buy your first home? This is a subject that often sees a bit of a generational divide. We'll talk about the cost of housing in the past compared to now, economic reasons why purchasing your first home can be difficult, how much money you might need, as well as the average age of the first home buyer in Australia, which may or may not surprise a lot of people. Let's hear what some Australians had to say about the topic. My parents bought their first home at my age and they were having kids at my age and don't think I could buy a home in the next five years even. Yeah, I think it is more difficult. Do you think it's harder to enter the property market now than a few decades ago? People are more vocal, it's more in the news and it's more on social media platforms that it's harder. And I think particularly I've got kids that are 27, 28, hear that and that's what they think. But I know for myself, 30 years ago when I was saving, we didn't have phones, we didn't have laptops, you know, it was a different era. I don't think anything's been able to keep up with that, to be totally honest. I mean, I mean, it's not just property. I mean, that's food. It's that's everything. I mean, so I think everything is falling short. People aren't getting paid anywhere close to what they need to, probably on par with what it used to be. To help us understand a little bit more about this, I've enlisted the help of PropTrack senior economist Angus Moore, who has a decade of experience specialising in economics and public policy as well as mortgage choice broker Terry Unwin, who has about 30 years' experience helping Aussies get into their homes. They're both here to help us understand why it might be different now to when our parents were buying homes. So Angus and Terry, thank you so much for joining us on Real Talk. Angus, let's start with you. I want to talk about what are some of the economic reasons why the average age of the first home buyer in Australia is in fact 37 years old? This is a full 10 years older than what it was back in the 80s. Yeah, we've certainly seen it get a lot longer. And I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into that. And I'm sure we're going to talk about them over the next half hour in terms of what's changed in housing affordability, what it means and what's driven that. A big part of the reason we're seeing people buy homes later in life is that it is harder to save a deposit today than it used to be. So if we compare that in terms of salary and house prices, in the 80s, the average Australian house was about $70,000. So that is more or less four times the average income of somebody back then. Now, the average house price is anywhere eight times and above the average salary. Terry, I might move on to you. With over 30 years experience and taking those stats into account, how is it for first home buyers out there at the moment? We're not seeing necessarily a decline in first-home buyers over the last six to 12 months. Uh, if anything, one area of first-home buyers that has increased is the single woman buying their first home without a partner. Uh, what I think a lot of the current generation of buyers maybe forget is that in the 80s, the house prices were a lot lower, but there weren't as many government assistance and grants to help you get into your first property. So back then, there was no option. You had to have a 20% deposit. Nowadays, you can get in from a 5% deposit. Okay, that's a really interesting point about the deposits and you just don't need to get that 20%. Let's talk about saving 
for a deposit. Angus, how much harder is it to save for a deposit now as opposed to a couple of decades ago if we look at it in terms of economics? Before we talk about deposit burdens and deposit constraints, it's, I think it's useful to step back and think about what we mean when we talk about housing affordability. And I'm going to throw some jargon in and I apologize if you're having your coffee in the morning and you know it's a bit early for that, but I think it is useful because there's really two aspects to housing affordability that we think about. One is what we call accessibility, which is can you actually get a mortgage? And for most people, that means can you save a deposit? That's about wealth. Do you actually have enough wealth to have a 20% down deposit? And we'll talk about the difficulty of that. The second aspect, and the thing that's maybe changed from the 1980s and 1990s, is what we call serviceability, which is once you have a mortgage, how hard is it to pay that mortgage? And that's a function of both how much you've borrowed, what your wages are, but also critically interest rates. And that's one of the big things that's changed. So when we talk about the fact that house price to income ratios have risen, that's really a bit misleading because you don't buy a house with this year's income. It's not like petrol, like milk, like eggs, where you buy them, you use them, they're gone. You buy a house today, you live in it today, you can still live in it tomorrow, the next year, 20 years from now, you can sell it to someone in 30 years and they can live in it. It's a very long-lived asset. So thinking about your current income isn't really the right way to think about housing affordability because you can't buy a house with today's income and live in it for 40 years. And so that's why mortgages are so important in housing markets and why most people, not everyone, you know, there are some people that can afford to buy a house in cash, but very much the minority. That's why most people borrow to get a house. And so when we're thinking about housing affordability, mortgages really matter. I think a really important piece of the puzzle when we're talking about deposits and talking about saving is that typically people buying their first home rent. So people are having to pay these rents, which are increasing their soaring, and also save for a deposit. So Terry, what are some of the options out there for people with a lower deposit? Apart from the government, first the grants that the government provides. So they're currently, if you're a single person in a critical industry like nursing or teaching, you can get a, into a, your first home with as little as a 3% deposit and most other borrowers a 5% deposit. One of the tricky things is the bank will want that to be seen as genuine savings. So you can't just get a gift from mum and dad for the 5% and then go and get a government grant for the balance of your deposit. So that is the trickiest part, getting that 5% genuine savings. There are ways around that as well with the banks. They will consider the rental you have paid as part of to form your genuine savings. If you have been out renting, there are banks that will consider those rental payments as part of your genuine savings. So let's just say somebody pays, I don't know, $15,000 a year in rent and they have $20,000 saved in their bank account. Are you saying that, that the bank is going to look at them as having 35000 What the bank will do, you will still need 5% minimum deposit. But if they've paid rent at 15000 and they've only got 5000 in savings, but their parents give them a gift of 15000 they will offset the 15000 gift against the 15000 rental. That's a very simplistic way they do it. It's showing the bank if, if you're currently paying rent, it essentially shows the bank your capacity and your willingness to make a regular payment. There's a bit there in terms of what first home buyers can do for a deposit. There's loads of options. There's smaller deposit 
percentages. There's different ways that the banks look at it. Angus mentioned before about loan serviceability and how that now plays such a factor in a mortgage. Terry, what do the banks factor in when they look for a first home buyer's ability to service a loan? The two main things that are considered by the bank is we hear all about what the current interest rate is, but that's not the rate the bank is assessing you and your ability to repay. So whilst current rates may be around 6%, the bank is assessing your ability to repay that mortgage at closer to 10%. So the higher the interest rate goes up, the harder it is to borrow money because they're assessing you at a much higher interest rate. So that's one of the areas of affordability. Does it differ depending on lenders? Do different lenders look at it in different ways? No, no. Generally, it's a set minimum 3% above current interest rates is set as their assessment rate. Some of the lenders that may have a few differences to that would be if you were prepared to lock in for a five-year interest rate, those lenders will assess you at the actual five-year interest rate because at the end of that five years, there's the assumption that your wages will have increased and therefore the affordability would be there. Okay. So you've just been talking about interest rates and how that factors into someone's loan serviceability. Angus, do you think it is fair for the older generation to compare the high interest rate that they paid in the late 80s and 90s with the buyers of the 2020s? It's the most common and hottest question I get asked. <laughs> and the short answer is, unfortunately, fellow millennials, yeah, it is. You know, it, it was very, very difficult to service a mortgage in the 1990s. To put it in some perspective, mortgage interest rates were, for a typical mortgage in the early 1990s, about 16%, compared to, you know, in the order of six, bit over six today. What that means for someone, for a household earning average income, buying a median dwelling at in the 1990s on a 30-year mortgage with a 20% deposit, so lots of assumptions there. Not everyone does that, but lots of assumptions you're looking at something like 35 or a bit over percent of your income going to your mortgage alone in the early 1990s. Today, interest rates have risen a lot. It has gotten a lot harder. We're looking at you know, a bit over 30% at the moment. So we're getting close. But even though house prices are much higher relative to incomes, because interest rates today are 6% versus 16, we're still paying less today for a typical, again, for someone on average incomes buying a typical house, which of course, not everyone does. That's a very simplistic way to look at it. And in fact, 2008, people were paying a little bit more than they are today as a share of their income. You know, 2008, we, we kind of forget now, but that was a pretty difficult time to service a mortgage. So in a sense, it's fair. In another sense, it's not, which is that we're not going to see 16% interest rates today. It would be enormously difficult to service a mortgage at 16% interest rates today precisely because home prices have risen faster than incomes since the 1990s. Do you know what kills me to say, but I feel like boomers might actually have some... Can I just add something there? Yeah, Sorry. yeah, yeah. What um, a lot of people would not know is that back in the 80s, if we had a husband and wife that came in to borrow together, the policy of the bank was to not take the wife's income into account because potentially she could stop work and have a family. So even when interest rates were at 16 17%, we had to show that a married couple could service that loan just on the husband's income. So what I'm learning so far is that boomers have some merit to what they say about millennials, but also, thank God, feminism. <laughs> I think. Let's also temper though, right? So yes, it was very hard to service a mortgage in the 1990s and, and serviceability was the constraint for most borrowers then. 
What's changed is accessibility. You need a lot, lot more wealth today to get into the market than you did in 1990 or 1980 for that matter. And and that's the difference. Today, saving the deposit is the constraint for many buyers, not all, but for many. Increasingly, that's why people are borrowing from their parents in order to get the deposit, which has you know all sorts of social ramifications and ramifications for inequality uh, that you know are things we should be thinking about. That's a big change from what we were seeing in the 1990s when it was easy to save a deposit. And maybe to put some, you know, to really underline that point, today only something like a quarter, maybe a little bit over, of first-home buyers actually have a 20% deposit. The vast majority borrow with less than a 20% deposit precisely because it is very, very tough to save that 20% deposit. The concern for me as a public policy economist is it relies on having wealthy parents and that you know increasingly makes home ownership dynastic. You know, it becomes a case of if you have wealthy parents, you can get into the market, you yourself build wealth and pass that on. And you know, while that is great for the people that can afford that, it, it's probably not a great public policy outcome that you need wealthy parents in order to become a homeowner. If we just break that down a little bit, you just mentioned that home ownership becomes quite dynastic. Just for our listeners, what does that mean? As in uh, runs in the family, you know, a family dynasty. Do you feel like that's going to make home ownership something really only available to people who have generational wealth? I think that's the risk that we run in if we don't solve housing affordability in a serious long-term way. If we, we find ourselves in the situation where deposits become the constraint for everyone and the only way to save a deposit is by getting a a bequest from your parents. Mm. I, I think that entrenches inequality in a way that is probably antithetical to how we want Australia to look. We did speak to one Australian who has recently bought her home in the last three to four years. Let's see what she has to say about it. We were given advice to sort of go, you know, below our means and stay within the 30%, which is below, you know, mortgage stress. So for us, we were making additional repayments and now it's sort of like those additional repayments are just going to be interest. We were pretty conservative when we borrowed. I think we borrowed about half of what they actually said we could do. I think saving up a 20% deposit is so difficult. Once you're in, your weekly repayments might be around the same as a rental, but it's just getting that initial startup is really difficult. Okay, so we just heard from a woman who... In my opinion, she sounds exceptionally financially literate. They are smart, but this is not the case for everybody. It's not a lot of people in the last couple of years have borrowed to their absolute maximum and are, you know, facing some what could be potentially dire consequences. If they borrowed half of what they could, it means that they really tapered their expectations of what it was to have in a home. Terry, do you think people's expectations and people's attitudes need to change in regards to the type of dwelling that they buy? In regards to the dwelling and also in regards to the area that they want to live. That's probably one of the differences in modern day buyers as opposed to, I'll say my generation of buyers, that we looked at suburbs that were more affordable and they weren't necessarily in a ring that we wanted, but we would move a few suburbs out purely just to be able to get into the housing market. I think nowadays it is a lot harder for first-time buyers to make those decisions. And that's not just because of where they've grown up, or but a lot of it's to do with work and how accessible they want to be towards trains or public transport to get to and from work. Um, 
So what we are seeing is that there are a lot of first-time buyers that could potentially buy a two-bedroom unit or a small townhouse, but they've got their heart set on buying a block of land with a house and a backyard and the dog and the pool. So it it is a perception of what's a good place to start. Your first home is not your always forever home. So it's more important to get into the market as soon as you can afford to get into the market, even if that's not your dream house. Okay. So if we talk about tapering expectations and, you know, this leads on from the fact that borrowing now is different to borrowing in the past and first home buyers can borrow less now, even than 12 months ago. So Angus, I'd really love for you to expand on what you mean by housing affordability and I guess fairness. Uh, that's a big question that I think I probably can't tackle in in half an hour. So, uh, you know, find me for a beer sometime and we can we can get stuck into it. To pick up quickly on that that idea of the sort of property ladder that Terry was talking about, we do tend to see first-time buyers buying more affordable homes. You know, we often talk about a median price home in Australia. And what we mean by median is literally middle. It's just a fancy stats word for middle. So half of homes in Australia are more expensive, half are less. You know, across Australia, that's like high 600s. You know, somewhere like Sydney, median price, so middle home is is something like a million dollars. Sydney's a very expensive place. For Melbourne, it's more like 750, 760. But some other cities, it is a lot cheaper. You know, places like Adelaide, you're looking at 600. Perth, it's like low 500s these days. Brisbane, sort of mid 600s. Um, so, you know, there, there are more affordable options. And importantly, most first home buyers aren't buying median price homes. Most are buying at what we'd call the 25th percentile, meaning that about a quarter of homes are cheaper and three quarters are more expensive. For somewhere like Sydney, for instance, that's about $750,000. So still expensive, to be clear, but you know, not, not the sort of million that a median price home is. So first home buyers are typically buying those, those more affordable homes. It's just that even those more affordable homes are still pretty hard to save a deposit for. You know, you're, you're talking seven years for a typical 25 to 34-year-old in Sydney saving 20% of their income to save up a 20% deposit. On $750,000. That's tough, right? Like clearly. That's absolutely wild that someone needs to save seven years worth of income for a typical 20% deposit for a house in Sydney. And saving is harder now than what it was before. There's many factors that go into home ownership that are more than just about how much money you have to spend. And we've spoken about maybe first home buyers do need to compromise in what they get into the market. They can't have a four-bedroom, three-bathroom home. It might be a one-bedroom unit, a two-bedroom unit, something like that. Angus, I'd love for you to expand on what we mean by the term rent vesting. Is this a better way for people to simply get into the property market? Rent vesting is an idea that gets a lot of coverage. It, it sounds very sexy. It's got a sexy name. The idea is basically just buying a cheaper home, not necessarily where you want to live, renting where you want to live and renting out the home that you've bought. And that way you can kind of get in on that property ladder that Terry was talking about without having to buy something in a you know potentially quite expensive area that you live. That's an option for some people. Certainly for some people in their lives, that makes a lot of sense. It isn't very common. We don't see a lot of it. We don't have stats for first-home buyers versus others, but in aggregate, only about 7.5% of renter households actually own a property. So not very many, right? And not even all of those are actually renting that property out. There's a small share of renters who rent, own a home, but don't live in it. Now, we don't know why, but it's probably people, for instance, you know, have temporarily moved for work and are renting for six months while they move for work and didn't bother renting out their home or 
potentially have moved while their home gets renovated. So actually the home that they own isn't livable. The kind of broader point is it's rent vesting. It's not very common, but it might work for some people. I'd follow that up statistically as well in terms of the deposit needs to be higher to buy an investment property as opposed to an unoccupied property. You lose a lot of your um, government benefits on stamp duty, first home buyer benefits. So when you're doing the numbers, it actually very few people would be in a position where it, it makes sense financially for them to continue renting and buy an investment property. Yeah, it's a great point. And mortgage interest rates are typically high for investors too, right? Which is, is going to make it hard for a first home buyer because you're pay, paying more on your mortgage. Okay. So I really love that you just touched there, Terry, on government schemes and incentives and things like that for first home buyers. In the current market, what is available to a first home buyer? From the 1st of July this year in New South Wales, the first home buyer stamp duty concessions have been increased. So previously it was no stamp duty up to a purchase of 600 and concessions up to 850. It's now no stamp duty at all up to 800,000 with concessions up to a million. It's more realistic and will benefit more first home buyers having those concessions at the higher caps. So on an $800,000 purchase, that's probably saving first home buyer around 30,000. $34,000. Yeah, wow. And importantly, it's it's $34,000 that you have to pay up front too. So it's directly making your deposit, which, you know, as we've discussed, is very tough for first-time buyers. It's directly making that deposit even harder to save for. Yeah, that's wild, $34,000. So, Terry, what are your tips for first-time buyers out there at the moment? My two main tips would be live like you already have the mortgage And that just means if you are renting, talk to a broker and find out what your repayments would be on your desired property. And if the repayments are higher than your current rent repayments, put that extra money away. And don't just put it away into an account and go, oh, that's just, you know, extra savings and dip into it if you need to. Because once you get a mortgage, you can't just dip into another account if there's no money there. So put it aside, don't touch it and make sure that each month you're topping that up to the equivalent of what your mortgage repayment would be. Uh, The other big tip I would say is don't leave it to the last minute to talk to your bank or broker about your plans. Um, Buying a house is a journey and I have first-time buyer clients that I have dealt with for two years before they've even got to that point. We can help with budgeting, we can help with planning, we can help with knowing different areas. So I think it's really important to engage with your finance team very early and let them become part of that journey with you. So Angus, we've touched on affordability. What does it actually mean if a mortgage is 30% or even 35% of your monthly income? How does that relate in terms of housing affordability? Yeah. So when we talk about affordability, we have those kind of two ideas, accessibility, saving a deposit, serviceability, paying your mortgage. We tend to express that, your mortgage repayments, as a share of household income or of personal income or any measure of income that you like. One of the ways that we think about it kind of across the country is just comparing, if we look at an average household, it's more like 120,000 today. And then we compare that to if you were to buy a typical, so median priced home, how much would your mortgage repayments be? At the moment, we're looking a bit over 30%, you know, depending on what you measure, That's pretty high. It's certainly higher than we were seeing throughout much of the last decade. It's close to what we were seeing in 2008. It's a little bit lower than what we were seeing in the early 1990s. But it is important to remember when when we say this, we're talking about an average household buying a typical home. Not everyone is average and not everyone buys a typical home. You know, affordability is not one 
number. It's not one person. It's it's a thing that matters right across the distribution. So another way to think about it would be if you're a lower income household, you earn, say, at the 20th percentile. So 80% of people earn more than you. Can you afford a home? That's a different way to think about affordability. So with all this talk and these examples about housing affordability, is there a way that we can make housing more affordable and more fair for those people who can't lean on the bank of mum and dad and those people who aren't from generational wealth? Yeah, it's a tough question, but a very important one and one that I think we're probably not doing a great job of answering as a country thus far. I think it probably has two aspects. One one is short-term, one is long-term. In the short term, it's about finding ways to help people with the deposit constraint. Terry's already spoken about some of the policies that are available for that. You know, these are things like the first-time loan deposit scheme, shared equity schemes, which exist in many states and now exist federally as well, um, which is basically where the government pitches in and owns a bit of your home and in doing so helps you get over the deposit burden. Those can help in the short term, but in the long term, the only way we make housing more affordable for everyone right across Australia, you know, high income, low income, no matter what, is building more homes where people want to live. And we really just haven't probably done enough of that over the last two to three decades. And we're kind of paying the price now. We're not alone in that, to be clear. It's not like this is just an Australia problem. You know, Many Western countries are facing this same issue of kind of underbuilding in areas that people want to live. There are reasons for it. It's very complicated. You know, Building a home is, as anyone who's ever tried to do it, it's hard. That's part of the reason it's so expensive to buy homes. Yeah, and that is a great answer, but it is one that we probably need to unpack, I mean, at length. So it is something that we're going to be covering later on in the season. So I really look forward to chatting with you then, Angus, a bit more about it. But for today, I feel like we've covered so much in terms of first home buyers and maybe getting a little bit more creative with not only how you save, but how you get into the market. So thank you so much, Terry and Angus, for joining us. It's been, well, I feel really informed. So I hope that other first home buyers do as well. Thank you. Pleasure, Alice. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. This has been Real Talk. For your weekly fix, please follow wherever you listen to your podcasts and tune in next time for more real questions, news and insights on the topics that matter most from realestate.com.au, Australia's number one address in property. All information provided is general advice and opinion based on current market conditions. These opinions should not be treated as investment advice. Always obtain advice based on your individual circumstances. Real Talk acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, air and community. We pay our respects to elders past and present.